I want to thank you for being here this morning. It's a great honor to get to share with you why I'm not. And we've so far gone through and we spent a couple of weeks for me telling you why I'm not an atheist. I don't think it's an intellectually viable position. I think it's one where an atheist needs to prove there's no God. And I don't think you can prove there's no God. So without that, you're kind of left with uh, some other choices. One of the choices we went ahead and dealt with early were two weeks on why I'm not a Buddhist. But that was taught by Melvin Tinker, a friend of mine, when he was here working through the library. And so uh, we took advantage of him on why he's not a Buddhist, uh, which happens to be some of the reasons why I'm not a Buddhist as well. What we've been looking at for the last four weeks or so is why I'm not an agnostic. I do think that is an intellectually honest position. I think that that uh, uh, to, to ask that question, is there a God, there are some people who when they do it and they walk through that door... That they're, they don't know. They're, they, they don't believe in God, but they're, they're not ready to say there is no God. Let me put it to you another way. The agnostic weighs evidence for and against God and can't decide. Now, what we've tried to do in this case, uh, class, is make clear when we talk about evidence, we're talking about real evidence that's used in social structures, that's used in, in issues of history, that's used in so many different arenas. We're not talking about a mathematical proof. God is not a scientific concept that's going to be proven or disproven scientifically. We're not looking for something to a 95th percent of certainty. Uh, 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 we're not looking at, at a risk ratio with God. This is not a mathematical question. It's a question that exists uh, outside of nature in science, in a sense, because God is outside of nature as well as working within nature. So we need to try and measure it in a different way. And as a lawyer, this is what I do. I mean, I spend my life in court trying to measure things and trying to weigh things and uh, sifting through evidence to try and see what the greater weight of credible evidence leads us to as a conclusion. That we call proof. That's how we prove if we love someone. That's how we prove if we... Uh, um, uh, 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 care about uh, who ran a red light. That's how we prove all sorts of things. What's the greater weight of credible evidence? It's a legitimate way to prove something. So with that as background, I need to tell you that it's important we understand what words mean. When I was mom, I think I was in about fourth grade. When I said to mom, can we make some brownies? And mom was in the middle of changing Holly's diaper or something. I don't know. Holly was probably, I don't know, what, eight, ten years old. And uh, no, I guess she'd have been about a year and a half at the time. Um, so mom was in the middle of doing something with Holly. And she said, well, why don't you go down and get it started? And I said, well, I, I don't really know how to make brownies. She said, well, the box is, is in the pantry. Pull the box out. You're a smart boy. Read the directions and follow them carefully. And I said, okay. So down to the kitchen I went. I pulled the box out. I opened up the box. I put it in. I added the egg. I added the oil. I added the water. I'm mixing it up when mom comes in and she starts laughing with this look of stunned amusement on her face because she sees me there in front of the bowl with my hands deep in brownie goo doing this. She said, what on earth are you doing? I said, I'm at the mixing stage. And she said, why are your hands in there? I said, because it says mix by hand. 
And in my mind, I thought it was like the way I'd seen my mom make meatloaf. Where she sticks her hands in there and she does that. I didn't know that meant don't use a mixer, but use a spatula or a spoon. Words are very important and we need to understand what words mean. Because if we've got a different understanding from someone else, or we've got an imprecise understanding, then it can alter the outcome of what we're discussing. So I want you to keep the brownie story in mind because what we've done here is I've suggested to you, I've pulled out the seven or so most salient arguments that I find people using for the existence of God. And I've pulled out the handful that I find most salient that people use against the existence of God. I want to analyze each one and I want to put them in the scales and see which way the scales tilt. So in favor of God... Our perceptions of reality are at least in seven different areas. Why is there objective right and wrong? Why is there beauty, justice, fair, etc.? And then we've got negative perceptions. Why is there suffering? Why can't we see God? Why do so many prayers seem unanswered? Is science at odds with God? And how do we sort through that? So what we've done so far in the class, and they're on the internet if you wish to go download them as written lessons or watch them or listen to them, is we've looked at why is their objective right and wrong. And I've told you that I think that that's a piece of evidence that in the scales, more likely than not, I weigh it on the side of there is a God. Why is there beauty? I don't find that argument persuasive, even though Swinburne and a number of people do a fantastic job at arguing it. I just don't find it persuasive on either side of the scale, so I don't weigh it. Argument number three, why is this idea of something being just or fair so hardwired within our being? Why is it so important to us? That whole concept is one that comes again in what we're looking at on suffering. Because there is an argument, if Adolf Hitler suffers... It's not that big of a deal. But when it's an innocent five-year-old child, it just doesn't seem fair. And so within us is this hardwired concept that fairness is a virtue. And frankly, I don't see that hardwired into nature. Nature is not a fair world. Nature is a world of unfairness and injustice. But within humanity, we uniquely value those things so much so that even the people who don't believe in a God will hold stridently to the concept of life must be fair. It's an interesting concept. So we've dealt with that. Why is there a basis for dignity and honor? Dignity and honor for all people. Why do we not look at someone and say, wait, you are a genetic inferior. You don't have dignity and worth. Let's isolate and only allow to vote people who have an IQ of over 100. But less than 130. Because those people over 130, they're weirdos. We don't do that. We try to value everyone because somehow within us... God believer or not, within most people is this sense of recognition that there's a special dignity in humanity. We'll eat the dead pig, but we won't eat dead grandma. 
Why do we uniquely value humanity? We've dealt with that. Why is there meaning and significance in life? We've dealt with that. That leaves us today to talk about, uh, uh, oh, by the way, each one of these I put on the side of the tally evidence for God. That leaves us today to deal with this question. Why do my actions fail to meet my standards? And why is there suffering? I want to do the first one rather briefly because I want to spend most of our time today on why is there suffering. But I don't want to leave off number seven because it's related and because it's an important argument. It's an important assessment of our evidence. Again, remember, the evidence we're looking at is our perception and recognition of reality. That means what's real in my life, what's real in the world, what's real to you. Because I may think that I've got Ebola right now, but in the reality of things, I don't have Ebola right now or I wouldn't be up here doing this. I may think that you know, it, it, reality needs to comport to our experiences to some degree. Our experiences can be illusory. But that's what we're trying to do is weigh the evidence. So let's talk about this. Why do my actions fail to meet my standards? And let's look at this argument and let's weigh it. On one side of the scales, we've got there is uh, uh, no God. We are a godless natural selection. We're just fish plus time. Or take it back further, stardust plus time. And we're going to weigh that against the idea of the Judeo-Christian God. And in that, why do my actions fail to meet my standards? Well, let me tell you, I got on the Smithsonian website. And I looked at what does it mean to be human, their introduction to human evolution. And here's what the Smithsonian tells us. Early humans first migrated out of Africa into Asia between 2 million and 1.8 million years ago. They entered Europe somewhat later, between a million and a half and a million years ago. Now... What does that mean to us? In real terms, I got my calculator out and I pumped in two million. And even though I think historically people were probably having children at a fairly young age as soon as they were fertile, I just built it in to round against my view. I put it in at age 25. And you know what I determined? This is it. My ancestors have had well over 2 million years or well over 75,000 generations to naturally select people who don't overeat. I've met them. There are a few who can eat absolutely anything and look thin. I smell the brownies. I had five pounds. Now, someone's going to say, well, Lanier, you know, you're looking at it as a 21st century fat boy. What you need to realize is historically adding that weight would be an advantage as long as you didn't add it so fast you couldn't run, get the next meal. Because there are times of feast and there are times of famine. And you need to build up and store just like the bear does for hibernation. That makes sense. But that's not really what I'm getting at. This isn't really my concern about the brownies. My concern's just a little bit deeper. 
My concern's not the physiology of what my body does to the food. Here's my concern. My ancestors have had 2 million years or 75,000 generations to naturally select people with rock-solid self-control. People who have the balance in life, the calmness in life, the determination in life, the confidence in life, the willpower in life, the ability to go out and do something because it needs to be done even if they don't want to do it. The ability to chase, the ability to be right, the ability to stand up for what they believe in, even though they don't want to. That's something that makes for success and would have made for success in my mind most likely throughout history. Am I saying you can't conceive of a time where a lack of self-control doesn't benefit or make you more fit to survive? Well, yes, you can conceive of one. But I'm talking generically here. Generically, the survivors, the natural selectors, should be the people who have rock-solid self-control. But I don't see it. We didn't winnow that out in the genetic process. I look at it and I say, you know, if there's no God, we're just a complex sack of chemicals... Why didn't we winnow that out so that we're a complex sack of chemicals with rock-solid self-control? Who says, hey, I need to um, um, read these 500 pages by tomorrow. Okay, I'm going to sit down and read these 500 pages so that tomorrow I will be successful when I start meeting with my witnesses. As opposed to, yeah, but the football game's on today. I tell you, the Judeo-Christian God provides a very clear explanation for this. It's the first story in the Jewish Christian scriptures. After the creation of the world and, and it's been formed and it's been filled, we have the story of this fella in the garden. And this fella, his name is Adam. This fella is told, and his wife ultimately, and that's part of the story as well, but just go ahead and throw it in here now. Adam and Eve are told, Do, you, you, you're to till the garden, tend the garden, you're in charge, you name the animals, you've got choices, your choices have uh, uh, blessings from God, unless you make a choice to eat of the fruit of the poisonous tree. If you eat of that fruit, you are rebelling against God and you are making your own choice that you will be your determiner of good and evil and you will know good and evil as opposed to leaving that in the hands of God. The day you do that, you die. Now, God gave that warning to them. But what the Jewish Christian scriptures teach is that Adam and Eve truly had that choice. God did not erect a fence that they could not penetrate to get to the tree. They had the choice. They ultimately, I don't think we have any time perception here. They ultimately made the decision to eat of the tree, to sin, to rebel against God, to be their own determiner of knowing good and evil instead of leaving that in the hands of God. And once they did so, they fell under the curse of death. It affected who they were and how they lived. Their minds were darkened. Their self-control was shot. 
They became knowers of good and evil in a different way. Not simply intellectually, but experientially because they then began to experience evil. And evil has the death sentence from God. And so they are dead spiritually and they are beginning to die physically. And they're kicked out of the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever in this condition. They're expelled from the garden. And in that process, the curse is pronounced upon them. Upon the earth. Woman, travail through childbirth now. The curse is pronounced. Man, you're going to still till the garden, but now you're going to till it for your food, and you're going to have to find it through thorns and thistles. It's not going to be easy. And humanity becomes a sinful crew. Adam and Eve are sinful. It's entered through them. When they have kids, the kids are sinful. If Adam and Eve are this pen and highlighter, They exist in paradise in God, but when they sinned, they died from God. They were separated from God. And they have their kids, and their kids are in that same sinful position. That's how we got here. And so the biblical concept is that we don't live up to the standards because the standards are God's standards that are hardwired into us because we're made in His image. We recognize the value of self-control, but we are unable to achieve it because we don't have that perfection. Who can take evil and just let it be part of good. Evil is evil, and to the extent God is good and God is life, that which is evil is death. It lives in a different realm. It's something God will destroy. Fortunately for us, he's patient before he does it, not wanting any to perish. But Adam and Eve are down there. Why is there rape? Why is there murder? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Because it's down there away from God. Why can't God just swoop down and fix it? He will. Why doesn't he do it right now? Because he's not wanting to exercise that justice in this world yet. Because to do it, the world comes to an end. Let me explain. Because this is not, you know, Bart was a a good high school debater. No. Bart was a very good high school debater. And he debated up in Kansas while I was debating in Texas. This is not a simple high school debate proposition. We're asking questions that need to go deeper than that. Let me tell you something. Yes, it bothers us that this is an indication of our hardwiring for justice and fairness. But there are three issues we really ought to confront here. What kind of God would exist that explains this suffering? If there are suffering children, it doesn't logically mean there's no God. He might just be a mean, callous God or a God who ignores or a God who doesn't give a rip or a God who's too wrapped up in his own affairs or a God more interested in Jupiter than planet Earth. But it would certainly mean there's not a Judeo-Christian God of loving power. What kind of world would explain that suffering? And what kind of humanity would explain that suffering? These are the points that I think we need to cover. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start out covering those, but we need to do it and understand the importance of the meaning of words. Ehrman's argument, 
If God is all-powerful and loving, why does evil exist? It's an impossibility to bark. Okay, so let's talk words for a minute. God is omnipotent. Right? That means he's all-powerful. Now, we get the word omnipotent from the Latin word omnipotens. Comes pretty straight. The Vulgate used it. Jerome used it when Jerome translated the scriptures into Latin for the church. But omnipotent is translating some different words here. Omnipotent is used by him to translate a Greek word, ponto, Crator. Ponto Crator is our Greek word that is translated all powerful. It's kind of a combination of two different Greek words. Now, that's fine, but if we think all powerful means there's absolutely nothing we can conceive of that God cannot do, we're wrong. We're mixing brownies with our finger in the goo. That's not what the word means. The Greek word pantokrator was used by the Jewish scholars to translate, Jim, this is for you, to translate some Old Testament words. Used to translate an Old Testament word. That's a tzadi, and I can't do the old script. I have to do modern Hebrew script because I can't write it. Sadi, bait, vait, aleph, vav, tav. You know what that says? Some of you do. Sabaot. Typically people put, that's, this is the way to do it. Sabaot. Sabaot. Sabaot is an Old Testament word that means hosts. There's also another Old Testament word that's used in the same way. Um, uh, uh, um, um, but let's, let's leave it there for now. Sabaot is, is probably from an old Arabic word. It means strong. So in a sense, for God to be the Lord of strengths, yes. But what this really is, is Lord of hosts. That means God is the God of everyone and everything. He's all-powerful. He's more powerful than anyone else. He's more powerful than everyone else. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Almighty. By the way, uh, you know Luther's uh, mighty fortress? That's there. That's what he's doing. He's saying, uh, 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 did we in our own strength abide, no, confide, our striving would be something no good, um, losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Ask thou who that might be, Lord Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name. That's it. It's not Lord of the Sabbath, Sabaoth, his name, Lord of hosts. Almighty, Pantocrator. When we speak of God being the Almighty in Scripture, it's not saying that He can make a rock that's so heavy He can't lift it. That's a sophomoric game. 
That's a logical inconsistency. There are lots of things God can't do. God can't lie. God can't um, um, become a non-God and lose totally his godlessness. We've got to beware of thinking that God is either something he can't be, a charade of, uh, of, of who he is, or something that we want him to be. You know, we, we sometimes think that we want God to, all-powerful means he can do. No, God, two plus two equals four. And if God decrees it equals six, it doesn't make it equal six. God's not going to say that. He's not an illogical God. He's not an inconsistent God. He's not going to go back on his word. God is who God is. Can God make a rock so heavy God can't lift it? No. He can't. And the Bible doesn't claim he can. We've got to understand what these words mean. By the same token, God is not some puppet master who made us to be his puppets. He did not create Adam and Eve to be puppets. It doesn't say, and as puppets we shall make them. In the image of a puppet we shall make them. We shall pull their strings and we shall make them do what we want them to do. God says he made humanity in his image. That means we have real choices. That means if I want to get behind the wheel of a car, stone drunk, and drive that car recklessly through a neighborhood, I can choose to do so. God is not the intoxilock up in heaven that's going to bend the laws of nature so that the drunk person who chooses to drive a car is unable to do it. Could God do that? Oh, I guess he could. But that's not the way he's created this world. It's not the way he made you and me. He made us so that we can make choices. Well, why would God let us make choices if if he knew our choices were going to be bad? That's another subject that we'll cover in two weeks. Sorry, Ann. That's one of Ann's questions. That's another subject in two weeks. But, But God is not... You know, this is not a Harry Potter world where God just decides, hey, I'm going to change the law of gravity for today because some people are going to drop some pretty valuable treasures that I don't want to see broken. God has set up a world of cause and effect. Doesn't mean he can't stick his finger in and change it. He can cause a virgin to conceive and give birth to a child. But it's not what God ordinarily does. God is not the, the antiseptic prophylactic, so, such that it's prophylactic, such that you're going to, 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 to not, um, um, you're, you're immune to germs. That's not the way this world exists when we're here. It's not the way God made it. Now, does this mean God's a bad God? No, this is a pragmatic thing that we've got to think through. And not just deal as a sophomore debate proposition, but really drill down and think of what this means. Now, I was asked at Wheaton College when I was teaching an apologetics class, I was asked, why does God allow um, a a drug-addled mom in in the ghettos of Chicago to be impregnated by some do nothing father when that child's gonna grow up in abject poverty, in an uncaring family, destined to be destructive to society? My answer was, that's an easy one. 
The reason that happens is because that man produces something called sperm that looks kind of like that. And the woman produces something called an ova or an egg. And when the sperm enters the ova, you have the makings of a child as that cell division starts taking place. God is not a heavenly contraceptive. God, God, look. Here's an example. One of the atheist websites we talked about earlier said, look, if there's a God, let's just get all the Christians together and let's have them pray tonight at 11 o'clock in unity. God, at 11.01, remove cancer from the world. Let's just do it. Jesus said, if two or more agree on anything in my name, that I will do. And removing that from context, that's what he said. Think about this for a minute. What does that mean? That's an impossibility. That is tantamount to saying, can God make a stone? We might as well pray. God, make a stone too heavy for you to lift. So we can say, God can't lift it, therefore he's not God. You can't cure all cancer. It is, look, here's what happens. Let's let's think it through. 11 o'clock tonight, all cancer in the world is cured. Tomorrow morning, MD Anderson, empty. Tomorrow morning, all of the doctors, unemployed, oncologists. Tomorrow morning, all of the technicians who do work with those doctors and testing, unemployed. Tomorrow, every janitor that works there, unemployed. The real estate, ready for sale. Not just at the MD Anderson Cancer Hospital, but at every cancer ward all around the world. While he's at it, why don't go ahead, let's just pray for God to cure all the diseases. So now all doctors are unemployed. All nurses, all medical help, everyone else. Well, where are they going to get jobs? How are they going to make their next house payment? Oh, the rich doctors, they saved up money. Set the rich doctors aside. Talk about the poor doctors, because there are a lot of them that don't make a lot of money. Or talk about the staff that works with them. Well, they can't pay their bills. Well, but yeah, they're going to get kicked out of their houses. Okay, but if there's a loving God, then God will just give them houses. Why can't God just make houses for everyone? Okay, so now God makes houses for everyone. Now every contractor and construction worker is out of business, along with everyone else who's involved in the process of getting that stuff ready. So how are they going to eat? Well, God can feed them. Why doesn't God just feed everybody? Okay, so now God's going to feed everybody. Bye-bye, farmer. We don't need them. Well, why isn't God just going to... Okay, well, let's just do the children. God can protect the defenseless children. Surely a loving God's going to at least do that. Okay, great. What does that mean for parents? Bobby, you want to play in the street? Fine, God's going to protect you. Go out and play in the street, Bobby. We've got a two-week-old. Ooh, it conflicts with my trip to England tonight. Hey, Becky, just leave the two-year-old. We'll be back in a couple weeks. God's not going to let the two-week-old starve. God's going to take care of them. I mean, have we thought through what this really is beyond a simple debate proposition? There's a marvelous book entitled... uh, Let me skip to it. Let me see. I may not even have it on here. 
There's a marvelous book. Ah, do I have it on here somewhere? Keep going. Ah, there it is. Ten Stoffel. That stands for, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. And what the economist Edward Dolan argues in Tanstoffel is that the effect of the price of shoe leather in America will affect the price of eggs in China, however remotely it might be. You can't just do something without there being a massive effect. God knows this. Could God have had a lightning bolt strike Hitler? Absolutely. And if he had done so, who would have taken Hitler's place? Would it have been Hermann Goring? Who would have been smart enough not to start a two-front war? And probably could have won? Oh, strike him too. Okay, let's take him out. Who takes the place then? Is it Rommel? Who would have concentrated first in Africa and then used his tanks to take over the rest of Europe? And probably would have been successful? I mean, we, do we understand the ramifications of this? In the law, there's a, a doctrine that the Supreme Court if, has, has put forward. And here's what it says. When a case comes up on appeal, on an issue of constitutional law, that's, that's the gravitas, that's the big nut, that's the, that's, that's the weight. If the court can decide that case on any lesser grounds, then the court should do so. Because once you decide something on a constitutional ground, the ramifications are unseen in what they can do. Let me put it into card-playing language that my mom would like. Is that Carol Wilson next to you? No, it's not. Carol would like this too. If you play bridge, you don't trump something with a king if you can catch it with a deuce. 99% of the time, you're not going to want the deuce unless maybe you got a lead to the dummy low. But most of the time, you're going to save your high card and trump with a low. You don't spend something needlessly. Now, God, it's not, oh, God doesn't care about the poor. Heavens, he does. Jesus is the one who told his disciples that in the end, God's separating the sheep from the goats. And he said, it's not going to be based on who says, Lord, Lord. It's going to be based on who meant it when they said, Lord, Lord, as evidenced in their life. If you were naked and you clothed someone, you're doing it in the name of Jesus for Jesus. If someone is hungry and you feed them, you're doing it for Jesus. Jesus says, as much as you do this in my name, you're doing this for me. God cares about the naked. God cares about the poor. God cares about the disease. God cares about the infirm. And that's why he's told us who have a choice to do something about it. God is not a God who's, who's this uncaring oaf. God is a God who very deliberately has told us to try and deal with this pen and this marker and all of the garbage that they live in. With the promise, at the right time, God will fix it, but the fix is not so simple as snapping his fingers and curing disease tonight at 11.01. To do that, God's got to reshape the entire heaven and earth. He's got to roll this back. He's got to make this paradise again. 
We don't live in paradise, folks. We live in a war zone. But God is an all-powerful God who will win the war. But don't ever let His all-powerful nature turn into a sophomoric game where we don't realize that He's given us an ability to make real choices and to make a real difference. And He's given us a responsibility to do it. And when people are hurt, God cries. Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus. God's not sitting up there callous. He cares enough about this war zone to provide redemption for us by becoming human and suffering at the head of the line to bring us behind him. Now, this is just a warm-up. We're going to talk about this in a lot more detail in the next two weeks, or in two weeks from now. But we're out of time. So the warm-up's over. Here are your points for home. Point for home one. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And look, that, that's, that's the best explanation I got for why this is the way it is. It makes a lot of sense to me. But I got to tell you, I'm personally thankful for God's solution because I need it. The solution was that life would also come through one man. And God had to figure out a way to deal with suffering in a just manner because he's a just God who doesn't change. He can't just wash it away. If he could just wash it away, he could have done that in the beginning. A price has to be paid. There are real consequences to sinful choices. It is that simple. Sinful choices produce suffering. And God suffered those sinful consequences on our behalf. I was hungry and you gave me food. I need to share God's agenda on suffering. I need to feel sensitive. I need to not just write books or tell tales. I need to be seeking. I love our crisis pregnancy center that we work on where girls are, and ladies are being you know, they, they hung out to dry, but for people in the love of Christ who will step in and, and love on them and help them. I'm thankful for, you know, we've got opportunities to do good things in the name of God and we need to be doing them. Take it seriously. Cursed is the ground because of you. That's the reason why. We live in a war zone. We don't live in paradise. God's goal is not to take where we are today and make it paradise. God's goal is to walk through us, lead through us, and work through us to make this war zone a better place as we contemplate and work towards eternity. So that's a start of why I'm not an agnostic. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus before we go? Father, I thank you so much for a chance to think through these things, to go beyond the surface level of, of sophomoric arguments, Father, and, and truly deliberate where your hand is at work and how you work and what you're doing. Father, uh, capture our hearts as well as our minds. Make real to us that we really are given choices by you. That our lives make a difference and the choices we make make a difference. And let us make that difference for you, Father. I bless in the name of Jesus, my friends here, my brothers and sisters. And I pray that you would give them guidance, that you would give them strength, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them discernment, that you would prick their hearts for, for the suffering in this world in a way that, that does bring your light into the darkness.
May we minister your love to others. May we clothe the naked, feed the hungry, tend to the sick. And always in your name, by the power of Jesus, we pray. Amen.